Well, it's a privilege to be here with all of you uh, tonight. Uh, hopefully you didn't make a mistake in inviting a theologian here to a political conference. Um, but, but I'm interested to hear, and hopefully there will be some time after the talk, I'm interested to hear uh, from all of you uh, in terms of your thoughts as to how what I'm going to present uh, might intersect with the realm of politics. So here we go. Uh, the paper is titled Faith and Reason in Protestant Scholasticism. Uh, this paper addresses the place of faith and reason in human apprehension of the law of God. And it does so to offer theological clarity regarding key concepts, faith, reason, and the law of God, uh, appealed to in Christian political thought. While drawing on Protestant scholastic categories and distinctions, the approach offered here is more constructive and systematic theological than descriptive and historical theological. The paper proceeds in three parts. Uh, part one deals with the setting in which God instructs humans. Part two attends to the law and the manner in which it is promulgated. And part three considers the ways in which humans receive divine law. So let's start now with part one, uh, the setting in which God instructs humans. In Protestant scholastic thought, there are two basic realities. Uh, theology, theologia on the one hand, and economy, economia on the other. Theology here is just uh, shorthand for God's life in himself, while economy is shorthand for all that is other than God, that is creation, uh, with an emphasis on God's administration of it. These two realities are absolutely and qualitatively distinct and can be described using asymmetrical language. God is a self-existent, infinite, immutable, simple being. Created being is derivative, finite, mutable, and complex. So thus, God in creation, theology, and economy can be pictorially represented as two discrete spheres with no overlap. Another way of speaking of these two realities or spheres is as follows. We, we can speak of God in himself, in se, and God toward us, quad nos. Uh, this way of speaking underscores the ideas that, number one, all that God is, he is independently. And number two, all that creatures are is dependent on God's presence to them. Now, in reference to the latter category, God's life toward us can also be thought of as his external works, the opera day ad extra. To exist in the economy, which is where we all are, just is to be a recipient of God's benevolent presence in which he gives all that comprises creaturely life. And for rational creatures, Location within the economy means being a perpetual recipient of God's rational, 
communication. Uh, underscoring this, the late British theologian John Webster, resourcing Calvin and the Protestant scholastic tradition, writes, this order of reality, the economy, encloses and forms the nature and activity of creatures. To be and to act as a creature is to be an act within this ordered realm of being. And moreover, it is to be in the communicative presence of God. God's communicative presence can be described in, in more than one register, including that of revelation. Uh, considered as such, it may be said that all human knowledge is revealed. H humans know only that which is given to them by God. Here I will be employing a different idiom and speak of this divine communicative presence to creation as instruction. And in so doing, I submit the following. Humans dwell within a theologate, uh, a school of theology. All of God's external works instruct humans regarding his own life toward us and our relation to him. God's communicative presence is disclosive. It is for our learning. Uh, in this, God is the teacher par excellence in the word, uh, words of Elihu in, in Job 36, 22. Behold, God is exalted in his power, who is a teacher like him. As human creatures within the economy, there, there are two ways in which God teaches us. Uh, first, by means of nature and second, by means of grace. These can further be understood as follows. Nature concerns God's instruction by means of creation, creation being the relation of created being to the divine life apart from temporal considerations, and providence, which is the diachronic relation of the same. Grace, on the other hand, has to do with God's instructions by means of the, God's instruction by means of the divine missions by which the Father sends the Son and Spirit to redeem Adam's fallen race. Both nature and grace are communicative, though they diverge in terms of mode and efficacy. Uh, nature's mode of communication is nonverbal and general, meaning that it extends to all humans at all times, and post-fall, it is effective unto condemnation. Grace's mode of communication is verbal and special, extends to only particular humans at particular times, and post-fall is effective unto condemnation and salvation. Natural and gracious communication, uh, th these two types of communication are complementary though distinct. The former communicates those basic concepts necessary for humans to know anything of the order of reality at all, the latter communicates that which is necessary for nature, post-fall, to be restored and perfected. We come now to part two, which is the promulgation of divine law. The law of God is a type of divine instruction. It unfolds the order of reality that our own lives are to be conformed to. Uh, more than this, it attests to the order, the taxis of God's inner life, teaching us how to be as creatures in a way that is patterned on that taxis and thus experience the fullness of life available to us 
as the kind of beings we are, that is, contingent and finite. King David saw the law for what it was, a benevolent lesson in the way of beatitude. As such, he could write, Blessed are those who walk in the law of the Lord. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. The word he uses here, which is frequently translated law, is Torah, uh, which might be better rendered as directive, instruction, or the teaching uh, of the wise. The center of Torah in the Hebrew scriptures is the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses. The teaching found in these books generates and circumscribes a society, the, the civil life of Israel, identified as God's son. Further, the Torah prescribes a moral order exemplified in the Decalogue, a unified word distributed into ten words. The center of these five books is Leviticus, the, the main theme of which is the means by which the covenant community is sanctified or made holy. We might say that the Torah is akin to a set of Russian nesting dolls, the largest of which is Israel's civil law. When opened, the moral law is found to be nesting inside, and inside this is the ceremonial law, the temple and the sanctifying sacrificial system that is the beating heart of Israel's life, for it represents God's benevolent presence to them, even in the face of their ongoing failure to obey his moral precepts. Each element of the Torah, uh, civil, moral, and ceremonial, is part of an integrated whole, and there is a pattern and a weave here in which God's singular life is discerned, and an anticipation of the divine missions in which the Father sends the Son and together they send the Holy Spirit. Uh, similar to the way in which Father, Son, and Spirit can be distinguished yet remain one, the civil, moral, and ceremonial aspects of the Torah are one. With this outline sketch of the Torah in view, framed as a means by which God instructs humans concerning his own life in order to teach them how to truly live, uh, let us now turn to consider some key distinctions regarding the law set forth in Reformed scholasticism. Francis Turretin, exemplifying this tradition, identifies two basic categories of, of divine law, natural and positive. Uh, natural law is, quote, founded in the perfectly just and holy nature of God. It is good antecedently to the command of God. Positive law, he says, depends on the will of God alone. God could have given or not given such laws. Positive laws are good subsequent to God's command. I'm going to focus here on natural law, not positive law. Natural law can be understood in, in two senses, broad or narrow. The broad sense denotes nothing else, says Turretin, than the most wise government of the providence of God over creatures and the most efficacious direction to their ends. The narrow or strict sense, on the other hand, refers to, quote, the practical rule of moral duties to which men are bound by nature. Regarding this latter sense, Turretin writes, uh, that, that such uh, proceeds from a divine obligation being impressed by God upon the conscience of man in his very creation on which the difference between right and wrong is founded and which contains the practical principles of immovable truth, such as, he says, God should be worshipped, parents honored, we should live virtuously, injure no one, do to others what we would wish them to do to us, and the like. Uh, 
This natural law bears a close resemblance to the moral law referred to earlier in speaking of the threefold division of the Torah. However, they must be distinguished. Uh, while admitting of substantial similarity, they differ in terms of their mode of delivery. Natural law corresponds to the earlier category of God's communication in his work of nature. It is nonverbal and it is general. Moral law corresponds to the earlier category of God's communication in his work of grace. It is verbal and it is special. Significantly, the moral law is given within a particular context, namely that of a fallen world wherein uh, the natural law has been obscured. As Turton writes, after the fall, so great was the blindness of mind, such the perversity of will and disturbance of the affections that only remains of this law survived. It is within this setting wherein rational creatures have lost their ability to properly discern the order of reality conveyed by God's communicative presence that the moral law is given. And it's given for a purpose, namely as a component of God's unified special teaching aimed at making its recipients wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, according to 2 Timothy 3.15. The moral law, then, cannot be neatly extracted from its embeddedness within those sacred texts text given by means of the Spirit, Spirit's agency. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching. This leads to the third and final section of the paper. We've talked about the setting. Uh, we've talked about the means in which God's law is promulgated. Now we're going to talk about human reception of that divine law. So how is God's instruction received? Well, for Turretin, there is no such thing as inherent human knowledge, nor can humans acquire knowledge on their own. Uh, in the act of human knowing, God is always the primary agent. At all times, God is active in communicating knowledge of himself to creatures by means of his presence. Thus, to speak of that division of divine communication which takes place by nature rather than by grace is to speak of knowledge, he says, impressed upon the mind. All humans receive this knowledge from the earliest stages of life, even in the womb, and due uh, to the corruption of human nature due to the fall, all humans reflexively, without, without even trying, they, they reflexively reject and suppress what is communicated. Now, while it's true that what is suppressed and rejected is primarily that which is communicated about God himself, this does not mean that communication concerning the order of reality in the economy is transmitted without distortion. Uh, Calvin's famous maxim from book one of his institutes must be kept in view precisely at this point. Calvin says, nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. But while joined by many bonds, which, which one proceeds and brings forth the other is not easy to discern. No one can look upon himself without immediately turning his thoughts to the contemplation of God in whom he lives and moves." Close quote. Because of this interrelation of the knowledge of God and self, if we misunderstand God, we necessarily misunderstand self as well. Now this notion, I believe, can be applied not just to one's knowledge of self, but of creation as a whole. So applied in this way, it may be said that our reflexive rejection and suppression of what 
God's presence communicates to us of him has significant implications for our ability to rightly understand the order of reality. Now, with this being said, I would like Elsa to say that through discursive reasoning, it is possible to come to true conclusions regarding God, creation, and self, though this is the exception rather than the norm. However, because of the ongoing reflex to actively resist God's communicative presence, along with the corruption of our faculties, especially our, our intellect and our will, uh, that, that, is part, that being part and parcel of a corrupted nature, truth in the ultimate sense cannot be discerned. Correction of this deficiency requires a special mode of divine instruction and a rehabilitation of one's nature so that it can be received. And this is what is referred to as God's work of grace. What is communicated in God's work of grace is a provision of the true order of created reality as ordered to the truth of God's own life. His own life is Father, Son, and Spirit. Uh, such is the content of Holy Scripture. This content is not primarily a collection of propositions, though it includes these. Rather, it sets forth the architectonics of reality. To put it differently, it exposes humans to the pattern of being that cannot be discerned in God's work of nature, a pattern which recurs at the level of pericope, chapter, book, testament, and canon. And it is only as one's eyes begin to take notice of this pattern that God's natural communication can rightly be seen. Uh, for the Reformed Orthodox, the means by which this takes place is faith. And this is connected to the idea of the, the three theological principia, uh, the pr pr principium ascendi, principle of being, principium cognoscendi externum, external principle of knowing, and the principium cognoscendi internum, the internal principle of knowing. The principle of being is God. The external principle of knowing is special revelation, or what I am calling special divine instruction. And the internal principle of knowing is faith. Now, none of this is meant to downplay the place of reason. Uh, rather, it is to place reason in its proper context. The gift of faith is the giving of a missing faculty, enabling what was previously impossible, like if a man born without eyes received an eye transplant and for the first time possessed the faculty of sight. Without this faculty of faith, humans live as the patristic scholar John Baer puts it, some kind of phantasmagorical existence wherein they turn from what is truly real to that which is not, that which has no real existence. Faith is what enables a turning from what is not to what is. For us today, that involves first and foremost, uh, faith in the one whom the pattern of both divine and creaturely life is expressed, Jesus Christ. It is the image of God we see in him that allows us to know and become what it truly means to be human. And a key feature of the image of God in Christ, or imaging God in Christ rather, is the restoration of reason. Uh, to quote John Baer again, to be in the image of God the logos is to be logikos, reasonable. Or, 
On a similar note, Origen once wrote, we could say that the saint alone is rational. According to Romans 14.23, that which is not of faith is sin. This includes unregenerate reason, which is necessarily sinful, or to put it differently, actively bends itself to privation. However, with faith, reason can function as it was intended, not perfectly in this life, of course. It's still handicapped, but not fatally so. Faith, then, provides and circumscribes the context within which reason is free to move. A crucial aspect of what it is to be rational by means of faith is to view God's law for what it is, a benevolent tutor leading to faith, as it says in Galatians 3.24. For Calvin, the unregenerate man, the man without faith, can never view God's law in this way, even if God's law does expose and, and curb sin. To see God's law rightly is to see it as an integrated whole and to take notice of the way in which its structure in the Old Covenant dispensation is retraced in the New. Israel's political, ethical, and cultic precepts are embodied in the one who is king, prophet, and priest. And they depict the divine missions wherein God Almighty sends God the Word who perfectly obeys the ten words of the Decalogue for us along with the Holy Spirit, by whom we are sanctified and made fitting temples for the divine presence. While there certainly are moral principles found in the Old Testament law, and while it is also true that there is a resonance between these and natural law, I would push back on the notion that there is therefore any overlap between the two. Uh, God's moral law is embedded in God's unified special instruction meant to lead to the restoration of human nature and ultimately the world. By way of conclusion, I'd like to briefly pose a question regarding how the previous account of faith, reason, and God's law might impact the topic of politics. Uh, if faith provides the only context in which reason properly operates, such that reason ought not to be understood as a faculty that Christians and non-Christians possess in the same way, what are the implications? So questions here might be, in light of this, what is the best kind of government? Uh, Libertarianism or theonomy? Uh, well, these two, while seemingly toward the extreme ends of the available options, uh, they both, in my view, are, are working to mitigate, mitigate this difficulty. Another question might be, how ought we to engage in political dialogue in the public square, considering the fact that uh, we do not, as Christians and non-Christians, possess reason in the same way uh, and a final question might be how involved ought Christians to be in political engagement compared to their engagement in activities that might result in people coming to faith or what, what ought the fuel mix to be there, I guess. All right, thank you. Mm. What do you do you think there's a point at which faith, I mean, reason supersedes faith, and what are the consequences of that? Historically, do I think that turn takes place? Is that what you're asking? Yeah. Or I, I think there's I think a faith has to govern, like you said, has to govern reason. But there's a point at which reason 
supersedes faith, and it seems that all sorts of catastrophes have grown out of that. So, yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to speak in a, in a blanket way um, here, but I, I mean, I do think that you have all kinds of things going on, including the impact of, of Kant, um, uh, uh, turn to the subject. I mean, there, there's all kinds of things going on here. I, I, th I think maybe part of what takes place is that there is um, a, uh, an idea that reason can do more that, than it really can do. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm not a historian, so I don't, and, and I don't want to make any sweeping generalizations, uh, but I, I, I certainly would say that there has been a certain kind of elevation of reason that seems to have taken place uh, post-Enlightenment. So I, I understand that your paper was, as you described it more, constructive and systematic theological than descriptive and historical theological. But Jeremy started us tonight by talking about a man who didn't get into, and I'll just butcher the words, but the broad philosophical that talked about uh, what we all know from experience, or at least that was part of his argument. Would your same criticisms uh, or critiques of that sort of trying to Yeah, well, what <laughs> I want to be clear, I'm not trying to set forth a critique, but rather kind of sketch the terrain, right? Um, and so, and I, I don't know that I know enough um, to really comment on any defects in, uh, in Buchanan. Um, Yeah, I, I mean, I think that in a largely, the way this all falls out uh, is going to be perhaps a bit different in a predominantly Christian society versus kind of the, the era, time and place that we're in now. Uh, just leave it there. Let me ask this, if, if there's a particular issue, <clears throat> problem that we're trying to solve, in the world, and, and there doesn't appear to be anything specific in divine special revelation that addresses it. And you've got Christians, mm -hmm. regenerate mm -hmm. and the un unregenerate, and they're trying to solve this problem, and they're trying to solve it by means of reason. Are you saying that the unregenerate are handicapped in some sense in that process? I, I'm saying more than that. Uh, I would say that both are handicapped. Um, I would say that the unregenerate are missing the faculty needed to properly process natural revelation. Um, so, I mean, I would be with, I mean, I, I'll employ Calvin's famous um, kind of analogy uh, of the scriptures for the regenerate person being, you know, the spectacles by which we're able to really even understand what's going on in terms of natural, natural revelation. Chris, how do you account for common grace in this? Is that yeah, so this a semantic thing? Because it seems there, there is a process. I think you know, we Christians would say we've learned a whole lot from smart unbelievers. You know, we would also say that, right? So how does that 
Sure. So, um, and I thought of this as I was driving over. This this entire paper could have been, I mean, I, I could have focused on providence, and it, that's kind of a, a a missing component in the in the talk that I gave. Um, providentially, God sustains and directs the world, and there is common grace involved in that. Um, uh, so. I'm, I'm not saying that non-Christians are kind of just walking around uh, in a kind of absolute, absolute state of intelligence, of unintelligence. Um, that's not what I'm getting at. What, what I'm getting at is the idea that, and I, and I think what I mentioned is that they're able to discursively discern truths about the world because of God's ongoing active communicative presence uh, in the world. But at the same time, it's, it's, it's never going to be truth with a capital T. It's always going to be deficient, and it's always going to be improperly ordered. But it will be for the, for the Christians as well, just to a less extent? No, a Christian can have his or her intelligence be properly ordered. It's not, it's not gonna be so at every moment of, right. of every day. But yeah, that is, that is a possibility for the Christian person. And so, I mean, I used also kind of that word bent in, in talking about uh, a non-believer's intellect being uh, kind of bent away from the truth. So, so you carry, even if you, if you step back a ways, kind of in that, that, that progress of bending away from, from the truth, um, kind of where the unbeliever is at, kind of the Christian, non-Christian are starting at the same point. Let's say the, uh, the, the Christian intellect is properly ordered, right? Um, for a while, it may even kind of look like they're headed in the same way, but, but you take it out far enough and the non-believer's intellect is, is, is ultimately going to bend away from ultimate truth. Gerald, did you have a question? Uh, I think I, kind of, I was going to ask kind of the inverse of uh, what do you do with, uh, I can't remember how you worded it, but it, it was when you, you brought saints and... and Origin, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I was thinking of uh, the opposite of not necessarily, I was thinking of believers that are not intellectually ordered or they're promoting political ideas that are... Mm. Um, Yeah, so I mean, can, can non-believers get can non-believers get things? I mean, can believers get things wrong, and, yes. and can they come up with bad political ideas? I mean, I would certainly I would I would want to say that's that happens all the time. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. All right. Thank you. Thank you.